Yeah, this is, it's been just kind of a heavy week. Um, you know, personally, um, the pastor that taught me my whole life passed away this week um, at 96 years old. And uh, it's, uh, I can't tell you how, how dear of a friend Pastor Ron is and how he just shows up at like the right moment. Because I was here Friday and, and found that out. And Ron, we're usually off on Friday, but I was getting some stuff done. He just happens to walk in. He says, how you doing, man? And I was like, man, I didn't think I was going to cry, but now I am, you know, and just what a, what a, a beautiful shepherd we have in, in Pastor Ron. Um, and uh, yeah, it's tough, you know, and it's, and it's a beautiful thing that someone has given their life to sharing the gospel and saw countless people changed. Could have done many other things, truly, could have done a lot of other things, but said, no, this is my, this is my, my stay. This is, this is what the Lord has called me to do. Um, so 96 years young, and he's probably dancing and shouting and screaming right now in heaven. So it's a, a place that he's wanted to go for a long time, and the Lord finally called him home. Amen. But we also grieve today, uh, I believe today is 21 years, is it not, from 9-11? And that hits me pretty hard, and I just want to encourage you as a church, just with grief in general, this heaviness that Ike was sharing, um, talk about it. You know, when you're dealing with it, talk about it with people who are safe, Pray about it. I'll never forget every moment that 9-11 and 2001 is, is drilled into my brain. Um, and it hit me so hard as, as it took place in, in my backyard, in essence. And I remember thinking I was through it. And four years later, whom my now wife, Wendy, and I were at a movie. And there was a, a trailer for a, a firefighter movie. that, And they were the responders at 9-11. They were honoring them in a film. And I just started crying. And what an amazing spouse and partner I have. And she goes, man, are you okay? Like, I don't know that you've actually dealt with this the way that you need to. And I was like, man, I don't know that I have. And it was just this time to process and let the Lord heal something that was ripped out. So we do grieve and mourn with the families that were lost and the lives that were lost. And, and just continue to pray for this nation and this world. Amen. So um, with that being said, let's jump in to uh, our, our teaching this morning. Um, we're at an important place in the book of Matthew where what Pastor Ron shared last week about Jesus being rejected in Galilee and what I'm going to share on this week is a bridge where we are in the book of Matthew to, believe it or not, the fourth section of the book of Matthew. Can you guys believe it? We have gone through three sections of the book of Matthew. Give yourselves a round of applause. This has been, this has been a lot of work, you know, going through this book. Um, so we started in chapters 4 through 7, right? We saw the announcement of God's kingdom. We went to chapters 8 through 10. We see Jesus bringing his kingdom into the lives of his people. And then we just finished 11, 12, and 13, where we saw the responses of people to Jesus' gospel and his ministry. We saw acceptance, we saw rejection, and we saw this neutral response. Um, so Jesus, though, what we saw so far in the book of Matthew was rejected the most by religious leaders and people in authority. Religious leaders and people in authority, people who should have known who this Jesus was, rejected him the most. So it begs this simple yet complicated question. How does this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders play itself out? And we... We've been able to fast forward, so we know what the ultimate conclusion is, don't we? Jesus dies on the cross and gives us this amazing, beautiful opportunity 
to reconcile with our Heavenly Father. Amen? But Matthew takes these next about seven chapters, chapter 14 through 20, and shows us how people had different expectations about Jesus. Now, the reason why I recap and I, I talk about these different sections of the book of Matthew uh, is, is simple. When I was a kid, and even now it's in our house, my great-grandmother knitted a quilt. And it's a beautiful quilt with yarn, and it's green and yellow, and it has all sorts of really beautiful colors in it, right? And it, uh, sits in, it sits downstairs, and we use it. It keeps you nice and warm. But there's a beautiful thing when you look at a quilt. A quilt, and this was a yarn quilt, so I know that there's kind of like cloth quilts, if you know what I'm saying, too. But you have these things called granny squares. You guys know what granny squares are for the most part? Um, each of those squares, they're kind of structured the same way, but there's different colors and there's different yarn that's used, right? And there's patterns that show up. And that's really what Matthew has been doing so far through these first 13 books, uh, first 13 chapters in Matthew. He's knitting squares together and he's putting them together so that we see this congruent story of who Jesus is. And we're so blessed, and I just thought about that example, that we get to wrap ourselves up with the gospel. <laughs> we get to clothe ourselves with, with what Christ shows us through, through his word. And Matthew did this masterful job of preserving the word so that we get to read it today. Amen. So when we look at this book, and we're at this place in chapter 14, there are people who are seeing Jesus for who he really is. He is the Messiah. But then there's others that are looking at him saying, that can't be him, because the Messiah is supposed to come as like a warlord, and he's going to victoriously defeat all the pagans. And, and this is, that's the real Messiah that, that we're looking for that we read about in Psalms chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 2. And this thinking, these expectations, started last week with what Pastor Ron shared, and it continues today. right? Last week's sermon and today's sermon serve as a bridge to this next portion of Scripture. So think about the threads that hold those two granny squares together. We see two rejections of Jesus bringing his kingdom to earth. First from Galilee, where he was from. And now, this week, we get a rejection from Herod, the Tetrarch. So let's start by reading Matthew chapter 14. And we're just going to read the first, two the first two verses in this chapter. And it goes a little something like this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So interesting, right? This is, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Kind of a strange passage, Right? Who is Herod, anyway? Why is this guy so significant, and why does he have this title of Tetrarch? Because that sounds fancy. That sounds like a real fancy boy title. So a Tetrarch is a governor of one of four divisions of a country or providence. So, yeah, it is fancy. It's a fancy way of letting us, the reader, know that Herod is in a position of power. But why are we talking about John? Why are we, why are we even looking at John the Baptist, like... The last time that we heard about John the Baptist was back in chapter 11. This is, for us, a couple of months ago, right? So there's some time that has passed here. Why are we hearing about John the Baptist, right? 
So the timeline as we're reading the beginning of chapter 14 is insanely important to fully understand what the Word of God is showing us here. As we read chapter 14, the first two verses of chapter 14, from a chronological standpoint, take place after verses 3 through 12. Okay? So think of it like this. If you've ever watched a movie or read a book, and a, a character in the movie or in the book, they hear something, or they see something. Uh, there's a painting that they see, or there's a color, and for whatever reason, it like triggers them, and something is off, something is wrong, and we, the viewer, or we, the reader, we're paying attention and going, oh, man, there's something significant about that, isn't there, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Right? It kind of triggers, triggers somebody in the, in, in the story, and that invokes fear in them. So we as a viewer, we as a reader, we don't know what it is or why this is as significant as it is, but we know it's significant. Something about their countenance changes, and we've, we're paying attention to that. So the region that Herod was over was a place where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. So as Herod is hearing about the works that Jesus is doing... It's making him nervous, and he's trying to connect the dots. And when it clicks for Herod, Herod thinks that this is John the Baptist come back to life. Well, why in the world would Herod be afraid of John the Baptist, and why in the world would Herod be afraid of Jesus? Well, Matthew is prompting us to stop for a moment and to take a look back at how John died. So we're going to read that in verses 3 through 12, which are actually a flashback to John the Baptist's Baptist's death. So let's read the whole passage in context, uh, starting at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So this is the flashback. So if you all kind of put your hands up and down and go, we're now going back in time, okay? In verse 3, it says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias. I looked up the pronunciation of every one of these names. There are a lot of people in this. So, and if I get slipped up, I'm sorry, but I guarantee you that's Herodias. I thought it was something different. My wife made sure I knew how to pronounce everything uh, because there are some crazy names and places in the Bible, is there not, that are kind of, they, they trip you up. So we got Herodias. Okay, where are we now? We're in verse, uh, verse 3. Now Herod was, uh, had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Huh, okay. So his brother Philip's wife, okay. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. You guys putting the dots together? Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. If you guys remember a couple months ago, we did a whole teaching on who the prophets were and why they were significant, right? They had a place in this culture. Verse 6, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. So right here, we have Herod's stepdaughter dancing for him. Now, This is not the cha-cha slide. This is not the electric slide. This is not line dancing. This is not square dancing. This is some nasty stuff that's going on here, okay? This dancing is considered to be highly highly sexual. So picture you have your brother's 
wife's daughter, right? It gets really complicated and gross, doing this dance for her stepfather, Herod. Herod is so pleased that he says, you could have whatever you want. Like, what could possibly go wrong here? Verse 8, prompted by her mother, got another person here in the story. She said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Whoa. Whoa. You can have whatever you want. I want somebody dead, and I want his head here. Spicy stuff we're dealing with here. The king was distressed because of his oaths and his dinner guests. He ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we need you this morning. Lord, there are moments in Scripture, God, that we can just brush over, but you are calling us to study your word and know it deeply. So teach us this morning, Lord. Speak into our hearts and encourage us, Jesus, that you would grow us in ways that we could never imagine. Holy Spirit, meet us here. Pick up this heaviness that's on our hearts and draw us closer to you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So, we have a very interesting moment in Scripture, don't we? We have a lady, the young girl who danced. Her name is Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E. It's Herod's stepdaughter, doing a dance in front of what was likely a group of her drunk father and his drunk friends. Again, what else could possibly go wrong, right? I mean, what story, what great story have you ever heard doesn't start that way, right? So he then, in this drunken moment, gets like sexually danced for to a place that he says, you know what, you can have whatever you want. Whatever you want, it's yours. Now, how many people have kids here? Raise your hand. How many people have nieces or nephews? Raise your hand. How many people know that you cannot tell children this statement? You could have whatever you want. Because what are they going to say? I could tell you what my daughter would say. My daughter would tell you if I told her, Sophia, you could have whatever you want. She would say, sounds great, Dad. I would like a Target department store in my backyard. <laughs> and her reasoning to have a Target department store in our backyard is twofold. So that she can have all the toys and clothes she wants and no one could stop her. And I tell her, Sophia, that's not really how economics works. Like, the people who own the store still have to invest money and all these things. She goes, no, that's not how it works, Dad. Just if we have the store, the stuff is in there, and we can get whatever we want. You're right, Sophie. You're right. You just, whatever you want, right? So I know that I can't make a promise to my kids that I can't keep, right or wrong, right? So Herod here is making a statement. He is saying whatever you want. He's given his word as the ruler that he is in this crazy, chaotic moment, and then he has to live with the consequences of what he says. So Herod tells his daughter, you can have whatever you want. And then we're introduced to Herodias, Salome's mother. She tells her daughter behind the scenes to ask for John the Baptist's head on the platter. And that's kind of a really strange thing to ask for. So we need to ask a question. Why would she want John dead? What did John the Baptist do to invoke such hatred from another person. 
Well, remember, we've shared this over these last couple of months. We have what are called the synoptic gospels. We have more accounts of this moment. And we find a parallel to this story in the book of Mark. And in the book of Mark, we uncover the reason. We find that John, at great risk to his own life, actually calls out Herod on his adulterous ways. So let's look at Mark chapter 6, verses 17 through 22. Starting in 17, it says, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Okay? Again, great start. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Church, there was a a dear friend of mine. His name was Jake. He would say this all the time. Sin will take you further than you ever thought you would go. You have this moment where John is calling out sin. And the response grew to hatred, which grew to wanting to kill this person. But he was not able to, verse 20, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. So John's reputation went before him. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. It's almost like there was conviction taking place. Finally, verse 21, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. We could fill in the rest. Okay, we all on the same page? We're all caught up. So Herodias wants John dead. But she has to wait for the right moment. And when it shows up, man, does she strike. She's like, this is it. John is out of our lives. So if we can recall, John was considered a prophet. He was described as a prophet. And we know through teachings we did over the last few months that prophets brought a message from God and called his people to change from their ways and to repent. So we see a parallel Matthew is giving us where he's actually connecting John to an Old Testament prophet named Elijah. Elijah confronted King Ahab in 1 Kings, and John confronts the sin of Herod. And church, this is where we find our first point of application. As long as we call sin what it is in our culture, it will be costly. As long as we call sin what it is in our culture, it will be costly. Matthew gives us a window into two people, the first of which is Herod. And Herod is puzzled by John, but enjoys listening to him. Right? I mentioned just before, it's almost as if he's being convicted. But he wanted to keep doing what he was doing, so he did. In church, what a dangerous place that is that we know what's right, yet we continue in our wicked ways. When we know we're living in sin, yet we do nothing about it. When we know we're doing things we're not supposed to be doing, we have been confronted, how do you think that's going to play out? How do you think that grows? 
How do you think bitterness takes root in those moments? When we think we know better than the king of kings, hey, what you're doing, it's wrong, right? We could say, it's not a big deal. I just looked at some pornography. Really? I don't think that's a good, I don't think that's a good thing. I think we're sinning. We're actively sinning. It's okay. I just got drunk every night this last week. Really? I don't know that that's a good thing. It's okay. I just cheated on my spouse three times this last year. No big deal, right? And when we keep these things rolling, what do you think happens? There's a bitterness. There's a hardened heart that starts happening. And then you know what happens? The enemy starts getting you to believe that what you're doing is okay. He convinces you that, that the counterfeit is the real thing. And at some point, if we're being confronted with a truth, we have to go, you know what? You're right. And we need to change our ways. Herod does not do this. The conviction that John is pointing out to him doesn't change him. In fact, it makes him want to kill him. A word of correction to the wise is infuriating, is it not? We think we know everything. I asked this question about a year ago. I asked people, when was the last time you were wrong? Who really wants to admit that? When's the last time you were wrong? Right? We live in a world where everybody's an expert on everything. And Herod's expertise makes him want to kill John, but he can't because he's afraid of the people. So Herod is like many people today. He fears what people may think about him. Hmm. He fears the opinions of people before fearing God. Church, is that not true today? Look at the last few years. Have an opinion on literally anything. Right? Anything. If I tell you I'm a Jets fan, what's the response? You idiot. Why would you ever want to be a Jets fan? That's exactly what it sounds like. And in my heart, I'm like, you're right. But yet I stay the course. I've not turned from my wicked ways. Have an opinion on anything, and that's the response you get. I, have a, I had a friend I went to high school with. Um, over the last two years, he made a, a statement on social media, and we know how that goes now. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what he made a statement on, because there's only been 8 billion things that he could have made a comment on that could have self-destructed. Um, and he made a statement. And after he made the statement, his, what he said went somewhat viral, because that's the world we live in now. And all of a sudden, he started, he was a real estate agent, he started getting like review bombed. You guys know what that is? People just start dumping reviews on you, even though they've never met you. They've never done business with you. So bad that the real estate agency he worked for fired him. Lost his job because of an opinion, because he said something. When we see stuff like this, and I bet you anything, there's people in here who, you guys have probably heard similar stories, right? When we see this, we could start walking on eggshells because everything that we say and everything that we do can just be taken completely out of context. And it's created this heaviness that Ike shared this morning. It's created a heaviness. And because of that, church, doctrine and theology has taken a hit. We're at a place where scripture twisting manipulating scripture to say what you want it to say, it's, it's taking place. We start hearing things like these Jesus plus gospels. Well, you need Jesus, but you also need these other things. Well, I don't think that's accurate. Actually, I know that that's not accurate. 
It is only through Jesus that we approach the throne. That's it. It's through his sacrifice and atonement that we inherit eternal life when we accept him. If we repent from our ways, follow Jesus. That's it. It's not do that, oh, and also make sure you, you subscribe for $5.99 a month to the ministry, and then that, that gets you into heaven. No. These Jesus plus gospels, it's not it. I've heard Christians claiming, people claiming to be Christians, saying you don't need Jesus to inherit eternal life. You just need to be good. That's moralism. And the truth is, we're not good people. Michael is not a good person. Michael is sinful and corruptible. It is only through the work of Jesus in my life that he draws me closer to him. You guys following me? Okay, we need Jesus. And at some point, we need to learn from John the Baptist and how he demonstrates the power of truth. Church, there are situations that each of us have been in where we represent the minority of thought or thinking. That we become convicted by the Holy Spirit and we know that we need to say something. And church, recognize when I'm saying the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about spiritual things. I'm not talking about voting. I'm not talking about policies. I'm talking about eternity, okay? Because I think sometimes we stand on things to say, these political leanings are also my faith leanings. Man, guys, Jesus is above all of that. And we need at some point to look to him. And we could be frustrated with a lot of stuff in this world. And we can point fingers at it. Or we can pray for it. We can intercede for it. I have seen, there was a young man that I worked with years ago. The gospel, no matter what you said to this kid, he didn't want to hear anything. So I said, you know what? I think we need to fast for this kid. So his family, myself, a bunch of people, we all just started fasting and praying. In church, there were some things that started to break in this kid, and he ends up giving his heart to Jesus. If we can see it in those moments, and fasting and praying and leaning on the Lord to guide and direct us, it works in those situations, why don't we give it to him in everything? Why don't we give it to him in everything? So there's times that we have our thought when the Holy Spirit is convicting us that we are the minority thinker. And that conviction comes over us, and we know we need to say something and take a stand, and we know that if we say it, it's going to be costly. I would encourage you to think about a quote that John MacArthur said, and it said, it cost John his head, but it's better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. Hmm. Church, to have John's integrity and his fortitude to choose the right way, even when it wasn't easy. Church, I get it, right? There's a fear in the loneliness. There's a fear in being rejected if we speak the truth. But remember, if you are rejected, you're in great company. Don't become bitter towards those who are rejecting because you're speaking the truth. However, go to the Lord and intercede for them. Pray for them. Love them. And you might think, and I've heard this, not me, Michael. Not me. It can't be me. I'm not the person who can do these things. I don't have the right education. I don't have the right words. Right? And we have every other objection known to man. Well, I want to draw your attention to this amazing portion of Scripture that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. It says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. I know what I was. I know what I was before I knew Jesus. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Yep, check that box. 
Not many of you were influential. Yep, check that box. Not many of you were of noble birth. Yeah, definitely not that box. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Guys, this is what Jesus did. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has come for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? Church, if we're to have this boldness, if we're to speak the truth when the Holy Spirit prompts us to speak, it requires us to be close to the king. It requires us to be close to the king. I used to share this with my staff at Teen Challenge all the time. My spiritual walk is not designed to carry your spiritual walk. I will gladly walk with you, but I can't carry it for you. I will lock arms with you. I will help you with whatever burden you may have, but my time with the Lord is not designed for you. It's designed for me and the Lord. And then what Pastor Ron, myself, Daniel, pouring out his spirit when he's worshiping, that's the pour out of the abundance of spending time with the Lord, that we would all grow together. And it's a hope that we would catch that and say, you know what, I want more of that. Who doesn't want more of that? I want more of that all the time. Because when I'm stressed or angry or frustrated, what do I do? There's the one song, A Million Little Miracles, if you've heard that before. I've been listening to that like constantly. And I'm just reminded by all the things that God has done over the years. Hey, you're angry, you're upset, I still got you. Remember this one moment where I showed up? Remember this other thing where I showed up? Remember this? Remember that? If we're to have this boldness, church, we have to grow close to the Lord. We cannot expect to hear the Holy Spirit and his discerning voice if we're not walking with him. Boldness in the Spirit is shaped in desperate circumstances. So as this world is forcing us to walk on eggshells and the weight of this world feels like it's crushing us, we have to ask ourselves, what is being formed in us? Is it forming fear or doubt or loneliness? Or is it forming in us something great? King David is an excellent example of this. He goes down as a man after God's own heart, sure, but what did it take for him to get to that place? Remember, Samuel shows up. He's like, hey, let me see all the kids. And only seven of them show up. And he's like, wait a minute. I think there's another one. His own pops didn't want him in that line. He was number eight. Then he goes and serves under a lunatic. Picture, if this is David, and he's up here worshiping with Daniel, and he plays the wrong note, and Pastor Ron throws a spear at him. That's a crazy church service. Okay? But that's what he had to live through. He's playing a harp, just worshiping the Lord. You know, like spears start coming at him. He lived a very crazy life and served under a lunatic. And then when he had chances to kill him, David, he goes, no, that's God's anointed. A friend of mine shared a book with me this week. 
And he, and he said this about David. It says, in God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all students in this school must suffer much pain. As you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler who mets out the pain. David was once a student in this school. And Saul was God's chosen way to crush David. As the king grew in madness, David grew in understanding. Mm. We forget at times what David went through to stand up for what he knew was right. In church, these moments of uncomfortableness, of stress, they leave us with a choice. These times where we feel like the world is crushing us, that we feel insecure about who we even are, or even broken. Times where we call out to the Lord and we say, where are you? We have a choice in these moments. We can allow the pain in our lives to grow us deeper in our walk with the Lord so that when the time comes, we can open our mouths and speak boldly when prompted by the Holy Spirit, or we can become numb. I read an article this week about an author named Philip Yancey. He's a, a wonderful Christian author. He wrote a book many years ago called The Gift of Pain, and he co-authored it with a doctor whose name was Dr. Paul Brand. And Dr. Paul worked with leprosy patients for years and years and years. And he made a statement in this article that has just stuck with me. He said, I wish I could give my patients the gift of pain. I wish I could give my patients the gift of pain. When someone has leprosy, their pain receptors deteriorate to a point where they can no longer feel pain. That's why a third of leprosy patients go blind. Their body does not send signals to their eyelids to blink. The eyes dry out. They lose their sight. That's why many leprosy patients have amputations or even die from simple infections because they don't feel pain. They cannot feel the pain that would otherwise tell them that something is wrong. Pain lets us know that something is happening and action needs to take place. Philip Yancey was quoted saying this, Previously, I had thought of pain as a blemish of creation, God's one great mistake. Tommy Lewis taught me otherwise. Seen from his point of view, pain stands as an extraordinary feat of engineering, valuable beyond measure. Church, the difficulty we face in following Jesus has a point and it has a purpose. It is designed to draw us closer to the Lord. And as we close, church, I can't help just think that in these moments, in the way the world is sitting here, we can become numb and we can back out and say, we're just going to do our own thing. You guys do your thing. Or we should have such great concern for our fellow man that we reach out and share the gospel with them. If we spent time not worrying about what people were voting for, but spent that time praying for them, how many hearts would be changed? Yeah, gas is expensive, but there's people dying going to hell. And what's surprising is I read a quote from an atheist about 10 years ago that has stuck with me. His name is Penn Gillette. You might know him as a magician. He says this, If you believe 
that there's a heaven and a hell. And people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life. And you think that it's not really worth telling them this, meaning people this, because it would make you socially awkward. How much would you have to hate someone to not proselytize them? Hmm. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that a truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Church, we have an answer. And I've said this often. His name is Jesus. And the way we walk, the way we act, the way we speak, we did a devotion with our team like maybe two or three weeks ago. Pastor Ron did it on being above reproach. Church, that's a big deal. Because there's enough reasons why people say, I don't want anything about God. But let's be reasons to show what Jesus has done redemptively in our life to say, oh, he's so worth it. He's the answer. He's the way. He's the truth. And he is the life. And as the worship team comes up, there's two major things I want you to take away this morning. Number one, sin will take you further than you ever imagined. So if that's growing in your heart and you're feeling conviction this morning, church, talk about it. There is people in the back that will have name tags, or if it's someone you know, pray with them. Say, you know what, I need to confess something, and this is something i got to get out of my heart, right? We need to confess it, and we need to let the Lord transform and change those things. The sin of Herod led to the moment in time that we learned about this morning. But the second thing is this. When we're prompted to speak and don't be afraid, there's a, a person I've known for a long time now who I've been praying for, and it would have been very easy for me to not minister to this person. And at 11.22 p.m. last night, he texted me and said, please don't stop praying for me. He said, my life is miserable. I know what I need to do. And when I saw it this morning, I said, well, Jesus is waiting, big guy. Just tell me when. Tell me when. I'll call whenever you want. I'm still here for you. I'm fighting for you. I'm praying for you. Church, don't ever let the enemy tell you that when you open your mouth, it's nonsense because it is not. The word of God is landing on hearts, on tender soil, and we can all learn a lesson from what one of our elders, Bill, has said many times. Lord, send people into my life who are ready, who are ready and church, if we're close to the Lord and we're hearing the Holy Spirit, we can open our mouths when he says, now's the time. Say it. So that all of heaven would rejoice. So church, as we close, let's take time to pray. Let's reflect on three questions. Number one, has the gospel of Jesus changed your life? I mean, radically changed your life. Because if it hasn't and you're sitting here going, you know what, I've heard this but I don't really know what it is, then we got people who are willing to pray with you. We'll share with you who Jesus is. But two, who are you praying for? And who are you sharing the gospel of Jesus with? And lastly, how has the Lord challenged you lately? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this difficult time that we have this morning. Lord, I pray that it would grow us closer to you. God, that we'd be challenged by you 
and your greatness, Jesus, and that our hearts would be transformed to be closer to you, God. Give us the boldness of John and the gentleness that you carried, Lord, that as you hung on a cross, you said, forgive him, forgive him. Let us not take offense, Jesus, but I pray when those moments happen, you'd give us spiritual eyes and you teach us how to pray. We need you, Jesus, more than ever. Meet us this morning. In your name we pray.